Hello and welcome to another edition of RM Sotheby's Car Show. As you know, we've been taking a short break over the summer, but you can rejoice because yes, we are back with a special episode. And in this edition, we go behind the scenes of the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart. I'm joined by our chairman in Europe, Mr. Peter Woolman, where he and I get an exclusive tour of some of the museum, courtesy of the head of Mercedes-Benz Heritage, Mr. Marcus Breitschwert. And in addition to seeing and hearing about some of the incredible racing cars that they have on display there, we get to sit down with Marcus to discuss the recent sale of the 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe. Yes, you might have heard of it, the world's most expensive car. And you know, it's really worth a listen because you get to understand more about the history of the car and crucially, how it came to be offered at auction in the first place. And of course, what Mercedes-Benz has done with the not inconsiderable sum of money that was raised by the sale. And as a reminder, you can watch the whole episode in glorious Technicolor on our YouTube channel, which is well worth doing because if you haven't seen the Mercedes Museum before, it really is a spectacular building. So without further ado, enjoy this special episode from Mercedes-Benz in Stuttgart, and we'll be back soon with some more episodes. Enjoy. We are in the Mercedes Museum on a very, very hot day in Stuttgart, and uh, we're very lucky to be here, and we're, we're going to devote the whole of this show to all things Mercedes-Benz, uh, but primarily their competition cars, and we're going to be talking a little bit uh, about the sale of the 300 SLR, Uhlenhaut Coupe, um, which a lot of you will be familiar with, but I am joined here uh, in Stuttgart by the chairman of our European operation, uh, Peter Woolman. This is quite an opportunity, isn't it, to be here? Well, I think, uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for inviting me to be here in Stuttgart with You're you and welcome. the podcast team. Really, really excited to be here. Great to be back. I mean, this place now has some wonderful memories for us as a business. Uh, we broke all records for the sale of the most expensive car ever here. We'll talk about that, I'm sure a bit later but I mean I think just this building itself speaks volumes for this it's brand amazing, for Mercedes-Benz. It was designed and uh, in fact opened in 2006 by a Dutch architect called Ben van Berkel and as you can see it's just uh, polished cement everywhere you look and nine floors um, I believe it, it houses over 160 motor cars and a couple of aeroplanes I've seen dotted around there's one up there mm -hmm. um, uh, over nine floors, 160 motor cars, all Mercedes-Benz, and we were looking earlier at the racing uh, section, which I'm really excited to be going back to uh, a little bit later after we've spoken about the Uhlenhaut Coupe. And it is very, very special. We are very pleased to be here. And we're going to be joined uh, by the head of Mercedes-Benz Heritage Division, Marcus Breitschwert, who is going to talk us through some of the exhibits. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to actually drop down a level from where we're sitting at the moment, we're going to go down to the floor below where some of the racing cars are, and we're going to take a quick look at uh, some of the, the let's call them the silver arrows, um, to uh, tell the story a little bit around the Uhlenhaut Coupe. And then we're just going to spend a little bit more time, uh, Peter is going to be spending a little bit more time, should I say, talking to Marcus uh, about uh, how we came to offer that incredible car and, and what Mercedes has done with the money, uh, which is interesting. I think as well, Peter, for those not watching, I mean, in, in, 
one of the things that really captures my attention in this museum are the, is the big circular atrium, which you know you can look up um, the nine different floors of the building. But to get to those various floors, there are three wonderful elevators, which look like they've come straight out of the mind of Jules Verne. There's a real sort of futurist look about them, where the, you look out almost of a visor or a diving helmet from you know the early part of the uh, 20th century. Like, um what was the submarine called? Good I'm, question. I've got a mental I'm glad this isn't 20, live. 20,000 <laughs> leagues under the sea. Yeah. Was but it the Nautilus? It was the, the Nautilus. Nautilus, yeah. It's yeah. straight out of that image. So there's this sort of juxtaposition of modern racing cars, racing cars. Of course, Mercedes-Benz is a very, very historic um, manufacturer. It goes back to 1886, in fact. So it's, I think, this year 136 years old. As a, as a manufacturer, so it's a real historic mark. And we, as you say, we're going to be speaking with Marcus Breitschwert, who is head of Mercedes-Benz Heritage. So if anybody knows a bit or two about the history of Mercedes-Benz and also about the history of Rudolf Uhlenhaut, the creator of the Uhlenhaut Coupe, and the engineer, the chief engineer at Mercedes-Benz, who was involved with many of the uh, Silver Arrows racing cars as chief engineer. We are delighted to be here. Um, so um, it, stay tuned and you can, you're going to learn all about the Uhlenhaut Coupe and, and the sale of that incredible car. You're going to learn if you didn't know very much about Mercedes-Benz racing cars from the 1930s through to the 1950s, then hopefully you'll uh, know a little bit more by the end of this show. So stay tuned and we'll be back shortly. Welcome back after that short break and here we are in just a very small section of this enormous Mercedes-Benz Museum here in Stuttgart and uh, in a little bit, just in a moment, we're just going to talk you through some of the incredible things that are on this uh, Banks display behind us. But I'm joined here with Mr. Marcus Breitschwert who is the head of Mercedes-Benz Heritage and who has been instrumental in uh, the work that we've been doing as an auction house with Mercedes-Benz uh, this year and we're going to talk a little bit later more specifically about the project that we have been working with Marcus on uh, which I'm sure is not lost on most of our listeners uh, and I'm also joined uh, again by Peter Warman uh, our chairman of Europe and uh, we're going to sort of contextualize uh, what we're going to be talking about in the second half of the show by just talking you through some of the important stepping stones that took us right the way through to the development of the 300 SLR uh, Uhlenhaut Coupe in 1955. And uh, just our opening little gambit is this wonderful white Blitz and Benz behind us, which is a 1909 car. And I, I can tell you, because there's a lot of little data stats on this board down here, it did 142 miles per hour in 1909. And you need to think very carefully about that because in 1909, nothing moved that quickly. And isn't that right, uh, Marcus? Absolutely right. So it was the fastest thing on the planet at that time. And you needed to have guts really to uh, enter behind uh, the steering wheel and to uh, put it into motion. 
and you probably have booked uh, only bed and breakfast and no dinner yet. <laughs> <laughs> Powered by two enormous chains on either side of the car. Um, the one thing I would like to ask Marcus, now there are a section of cars here, and what have we got? We've got about six of them, seven, and they're all painted white. And as we look a bit, little bit further down the row behind us, they suddenly become silver. Can you just talk us through what went on there? Well, in the, in the early days, uh, you didn't have uh, actually OEMs having race teams. Uh, you had private drivers being supported and uh, so-called national teams because it was their pride to show up uh, in the color of their country. White was for Germany race green, sure enough, for Britain, uh, blue for France, and red for Italy. And that was the beginning. And I, somebody uh, told me a very interesting story that did make me laugh earlier. There is a car that's not currently on display, yeah, and, it, and it's red, isn't it? Can you tell us why that car is red? Yeah, well, <laughs> so sorry and my apologies to, to our Italian um, um, uh, viewers um, or listeners. Um, the early days, uh, most of the races actually happened to happen on public streets, which were just, uh, so to say, blocked for the purpose. So was the Targa Florio. And um, yeah, sure enough, if the Italian red would show up, everybody would cheer and make sure that the track is open and wide. And maybe not sure enough, but you could imagine that if any other color would show up, uh, <laughs> it was not that welcoming and uh, there was the expectation. So never uh, anybody else than a red uh, vehicle would win uh, a Targa Florio. So our engineers decided that Southern Germany is Italian enough to paint the car overnight red. And uh, guess what? We won the race. <laughs> and there were no roadblocks. Everyone, they just waved. Uh, everybody was cheering <laughs> and uh, we made it. That's an amazing story. I do love that. We have the W25 behind us, which I suppose, Marcus, that really was, that is the origins of the, what we think of as the, 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 uh, the classic era of supercharged eight-cylinder Mercedes Grand Prix cars. Yeah, absolutely. And um, great time uh, for race board and uh, purpose-built uh, race cars, not meant to be used uh, by private drivers on the road. Def def definitely looking different from private cars mm. uh, in the first place. And uh, just at that time, uh, the winners of all and everything uh, you could put into your shelf uh, after a race and that led us then um, after uh, the war into the new period of, of Silver Arrows uh, which uh, have been in a position uh, to kind of repeat the success mm. again yeah. in an unprecedented way. What I particularly like about this car, Marcus, and again, for people that can't see it, I mean, these cars all have these wonderful hand-cut louvers throughout the bonnet to help the air escape. But in particular on that car, it's got a, it's got a concave shape 
along the side of the car. And I'm really fascinated in the way that they hand cut louvers into that concave shape, whereas typically you see them on a flat panel or on a sort of slightly um, uh, convex panel. Mm. Whereas in that, sh in that case, it's concave and to cut the louvers into it seems like a real work of art. If we're going to uh, have a conversation about the 300 SLR uh, Uhlenhaut Coupe, this is probably the car that um, where that story began. And, Absolutely. Uh, and so tell us, Marcus, a little bit about the W196 that we're looking at here. In general, what you see here has been um, unchallenged and uh, not to be beaten uh, for years and uh, is then the true DNA uh, and the true beginning of the uh, Uhlenhaut. The uh, Uhlenhaut then, in addition, uh, gives you uh, 300 cubicles, 500 cubicles more of uh, displacement, uh, 20 horsepower more, and um, yeah, makes it or would have made it unbeatable in the racetracks uh, of mm. the world. But this is something we're going to talk. Uh, certainly a little bit later again the 722 hmm. my favorite uh, one here on this uh, tarmac uh, is the real one on which um, sir sterling moss uh, has won the millimilia um, and uh, i myself took part in the nowadays classic millimilia five times when I did it the first time in 2015, Sterling Moss was still participating. And as a president and CEO of Mercedes-Benz in the UK in the early uh, 2010s, I had uh, the pleasure and the privilege uh, to meet him again and again. We had him in uh, <clears throat> several events and uh, what, a, what a gentleman. and and what a, what a great personality. This vehicle uh, has um, actually won the Millimilia 1,600 kilometers, 1,000 miles within 10 hours on public roads. That's a record never to be broken. And uh, you had to be a hero. There's sometimes a bit of a debate, isn't there? What is the most famous? Let's not talk about value because that's not important. What is the most famous car in the world? Um, and I think perhaps in the certainly in the context of a competition car, can you? Is there a more famous car in the world? I'm not sure there is. I think that's got to be it, hasn't it? Seven two two. I think I think it's, I think it's, it's right. So, certainly, if anyone you know, any connoisseur of motor racing or anyone that loves historical motor cars. I mean, you could argue perhaps that the James Bond DB5 is up there in cinema, in cinema terms, but in terms of, you know, real grassroots, historic motorsport, history, um, the driver that drove it as well, of mm. course, is, you know, being British, as, as you know, you, we've talked about before, Marcus, the greatest man, greatest driver never to be Formula One world champion. I think you mentioned earlier the car we're going to be looking at in a moment is potentially, you know, one of the two greatest cars ever conceived and built that never actually raced. So there's, a, there's an interest in relevance there. And uh, I look, I'm n I, I, it's tempting to say, ask Marcus, it is tempting to say, you know, when that, when's that one going to come for sale? I'm not going to ask that question. I'm not going to ask that question. Hey, There's right, only one you can ask the question and the answer is never, <laughs> ever. Uh, because actually we just have one. Um, we actually have a, 
uh, a relatively contemporary uh, Mercedes uh, Grand Prix car, Formula One car, one of the West liveries cars. I'm not exactly sure what year that is. I'm going to have a look. It's 1999. Uh, and behind it, uh, and it, that, that's got some of its bodywork lifted and suspended above it on almost invisible wires. And behind it, we've got one of the W96R Grand Prix cars, which is being presented in exactly the same way, yeah. with the bulk of its body suspended on invisible wires and the, the nose of the car removed. And you can see all of the, um, the bare tubular chassis and the engine is in position and the fuel tank is in position at the back. Um, but that, that's a wonderful way to display one of these cars, isn't it? And you can really see how forward-thinking the technology is. What, I mean, what stands out to me with this, Peter, is obviously the display is beautiful, but when you, there's just no wasted space. There's no barely any air around the engine. It fills the entire front half of the chassis. And then if you look at the way the fuel tank is sculpted and it just fills every space within the rear bodywork, and there's just about room for a driver in the middle who I'm yeah. guessing has to have his legs splayed either side of the tunnel, yeah. the clutch on one side, and just that driving position for a couple of hours at these yeah. sort of speeds with your legs uh, splayed either side must, must have taken such... And you have to imagine the heat inside because uh, the engine will give the heat all into your yeah. seating space and then you have the very comforting um, knowledge that you are sitting uh, actually right next to the, to um, the tank. Almost in the fuel. Which is, which is huge <laughs> and uh, it is a bit riding the bump, yeah. I think that's a really nice way to uh, wrap up our uh, little run through of some of these Grand Prix cars and Marcus thank you very much for showing us uh, some of these very special exhibits that you've got here and uh, I think we're going to go back upstairs aren't we yeah. and now we're going to go and have a look at a, a rather wonderful car that we uh, have been discussing a little bit and uh, let's go and find it. Let's go. Welcome back to RM Sotheby's Car Show and uh, well we've had a really incredible look at some of the cars that are on display downstairs and at the beginning of the show uh, and it's been mentioned more than once since we have obviously talked about the fact that uh, earlier in the year we were lucky enough to be invited by Mercedes-Benz to sell the incredible 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe and uh, I'm, uh, for those of you who are listening, I'm staring into a camera at the moment and for those watching, you can probably uh, peer over my shoulder and see the other uh, 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe uh, nestling at its home in the museum here. Well, gentlemen, I'm not going to do very much of the talking because that's boring. I'm going to let you guys um, have a chat because, um, Marcus, you're obviously uh, pivotal in this whole... Um, exercise in, 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 off, in us offering the, uh, the, the Uhlenhaut Coupe and Peter was obviously a very uh, important part of that process at our end. But I think perhaps why don't we just start off by contextualising the importance of that car. Um, we all know that it sold for an incredible sum of money. Certainly quite a lot of people that I've spoken to have said 
wow, that is a lot of money. How on earth can our car be worth that amount of money? So that's quite an interesting topic all in its own right, isn't it? I mean, people that don't really understand cars and perhaps don't understand the historical significance of the 300 SLR. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, th I, think, uh, I think, Marcus, it would be fair to start by talking a little bit about the man himself, Rudolf Uhlenhout, who was, of course, half British. Um, and he had a <laughs> British mother and a <coughs> German father. But, yeah. I mean, I can't tell the story of Rudolf Uhlenhout any better than you from Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, he was a, a corporate man, um, an engineer, very talented, a race driver, one of the best ones at that time, but not working as a race driver. Uh, professionally but as a an engineer in the racing team um, he later on made it up to the board uh, of the corporation became a board member for research and development um, as a as a, a kid actually he grew up first in London his father was the head of the Deutsche Bank uh, in London expatriate corporate man too uh, fell in love with uh, a local girl and uh, so we have a very kind of international personality um, fluently speaking in both uh, languages and feeling at home in both countries um, and um, he was an engineer really not only by education but also by heart and soul by talent uh, so he came up with solutions which were kind of really stunning and baffling and uh, created uh, very safe, very fast and very impressive cars. And the Uhlenhaut Coupe is one of them. Alfred Neubauer was the head of the team, not uh, the leader of the real engineer work only, but really the team leader. And um, then in the after war period, when the corporation headed back uh, into uh, racing, Uhlenhaut uh, very quickly became the technical leader and um, made sure that uh, all of the uh, cars which uh, went to the start line usually finished at the finish line first and sometimes second and third as well in the same row. And uh, Unhaut um, was a, a man who really understood about cars and racing. There is this little story when uh, one of the most famous all-time racers, uh, Fanjo, um, was uh, just coming back from a test drive uh, to the sideline of the track and just kind of talked about the car not being calibrated the right way and uh, should be in a better in a better overall shape and uh, Uhlenhaut uh, jumped up from his lunch table and uh, in his uh, usual uh, outfit um, ran to the car started it and finished four seconds faster <laughs> than the um, the world champion, which is uh, <laughs> a nice story, and um, Fancho didn't like the story. Ulnhau did. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously hadn't eaten quite as much as uh, one Manuel at lunch. Well, to contextualise, I mean, that's like Toto Wolff uh, jumping in Lewis Hamilton's car yeah. and coming in three seconds a lap and saying, uh, "Lewis, you need to, practice more. you need to go faster." <laughs> <coughs> 
Kind yeah. of. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure Toto can actually fit in one of the, those guys. True. Any, no, but, no. Um, no I but I think, I mean, equally, Marcus, so, you know, obviously the evolution of the Mercedes-Benz Silver Arrows, which we've, we've, we've been having yeah. a look at downstairs a little bit earlier, started with the W25 and then went all the way through. But the Uhlenhaut the Coupe really was the road or the sports version of the W196R, well, yeah. which... Uh, won the world championship twice for Mercedes-Benz. Um, this is a car that was built on the basis of a twice uh, world championship winning mm. race car, the W196R, with a larger engine. And actually an improved uh, overall concept. Uh, it was a closed concept now because it was built for endurance races uh, for longer. Uh, distance races. Uh, we had stunning success um, uh, at the Millimilia, for example, but it also has shown that a closed car would be advantageous. It has roughly 300 horsepowers, 20 more and, uh, than the previous ones, and it has also a speed which is around uh, even slightly north of 300 kilometers an hour which was unheard of. Mm. It was made really to race uh, the road. But I mean, we're sitting here surrounded, well, behind us is the uh, Uhlenhaut Coupe, but we've also got a 300 SL Gullwing, which is probably quite yes. a familiar car. It's a very, very collectible, uh, historic, classic car. And we also have a 300 SL Roadster. But what's particularly caught my eye here in the museum Marcus is, you know, we're talking about the early 50s and that sort of immediate post-war period when chassis was still very much a ladder construction of box <coughs> section and many yeah. manufacturers were still using that. Mercedes-Benz came up with the concept for, of, the three, of, of the tubular chassis, yeah. hence why the gullwing doors were found, um, invented in the first place to yeah. accommodate the high tubular frame Absolutely, on each side yeah. of the car. It's basically um. a three-dimensional grid. Uh, it looks uh, nowadays very futuristic. If you see it uh, just bare and without uh, the, uh, the body around it, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a breakthrough technology also for lightweight building. And um, yes, indeed, uh, the nature of the beast was that you had this uh, high sidelines uh, of the grid and uh, you had to enter the car uh, through the gullwing doors. And I, I, I think coming back to your original question, Peter, just to contextualize that, we've started with the Silver Arrows, the pre-war, then the post-war, we, we, we end up with the twice uh, world championship winning W196R and then the evolution of that is the car behind us and the one that we've recently sold, the Uhlenhaut Coupe. So what we've got, of course, the 300SL, the standard road car, is a six-cylinder car. This is an eight-cylinder car. Eight. It's, it's a double four-cylinder, yeah. basically, in fact. Mm. So it's, straight, it's a straight eight, fuel injection, similar concept in it that it's a straight um, inline engine that's canted over to the side for a low frontal area and better mm. aerodynamics. But you've got a magnesium body, uh, so it weighs 998 kilos with 300 horsepower. It's still a pretty good power to rate ratio today, I would say. There's also a story, I think, Marcus, that um, Rudolf Uhlenhaut used this car for his daily commute from uh, Munich to Stuttgart. Not for the daily commute, but actually he was living here in Stuttgart, but uh, as the cars <coughs> obviously were not racing anymore, 
um, and he was just focusing on creating wonderful dream cars. Um, so uh, being half British, uh, half German, he was uh, smart enough not just to to leave the cars in the garage uh, on their own. So uh, it is uh, a well-known uh, story here at the um, at the very civilized town of Stuttgart that Mr. Uhlenhout, you know, the engineers, they start early in the morning <laughs> and they end up late at night. So that in the very early morning you could, uh, you could actually hear a, a <laughs> thunderstroke-like start of an engine in uh, the uh, southern part of Stuttgart when he jumped into his uh, Uhlenhout coupe. And, um, and just went uh, to work with it and late night came back and um, that was quite something. Uh, it was not on a daily basis, but it happened often enough uh, to be memorized uh, by people who are still alive and as young kids uh, have heard it, have seen it. Uh, and um, he also, you, you mentioned Munich, um, he was at a meeting here and um, and basically at that time, similar than today, you needed to drive on the highway, on the Autobahn to Munich a little bit more than two hours. And um, so it, he had an important uh, appointment meeting there and it was just a little bit more than an hour away. So uh, he was kind of reminded to cancel the meeting and he said, leave it with me. And a uh, little bit more than an hour later, um, just um, right in time was at Munich. So it's mm -hmm. an average speed of around 220 kilometers an hour or something That's along those lines. That's basically um, the math. That's yeah. pretty impressive. Well, it's interesting <laughs> what you say about the, uh, the local residents <coughs> of Stuttgart hearing the car uh, uh, arriving in the morning and leaving in the evening because actually <coughs> the, the noise of the engine is I mean it is incredible and it's very very distinctive and we we had the um, Goodwood Festival of Speed yes. recently and 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 uh, we know I know you 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 guys came over with a car and actually one of the uh, one of the bits that went down very very well on social media I know was the the warming of the engine of the 300 SLR that that, that, that was at the festival of speed and it's an, it is an incredible sound. Sterling Moss had once said uh, that the SLR has of all cars not only the loudest uh, but also the meanest voice yeah. so it has something which is um, it has like a yowl doesn't kind it? of like yeah a, quite yeah. aggressive mm -hmm. and uh, it says get out of my way yeah that's yeah. for sure that's for sure well i i so <coughs> if we sort of perhaps bring our conversation around to um uh the the what's happened this year with the sale of the car um a few months ago i think what what would be really interesting for the listeners to to understand is um, perhaps a little bit about what the Tool and Hout Coupes have done in the intervening years since the 1950s. They've both resided full-time with Mercedes-Benz. Yes. But it's fair to say that um, the cars have been seen in public, but, but can you just tell us a little bit about the life that the cars have had in, in, in the la you know, since 1955? Yeah, they, um, the cars went to 
they collection um, and uh, have been used then for several purposes. Uh, we brought them to shows, we did test drives and um, they have been always um, in regular uh, periods uh, they have been visible um, and um, never have been never have been forgotten both of them um, have uh, a wonderful history of um, yeah being uh, you know if Sterling Moss is the the best driver uh, who never became a world champion so the Uhlenhauts probably are the best racing cars who never won a race. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and that made the real uh, charm of it. And um, the um, kind of the personality of the, um, of the creator who drove them himself. And also the little bit of tragedy to be prepared and uh, actually to have a destination which never happens. There's also something which uh, attracts people, mm. uh, which, which people like as a, as a story and as a history. Um, so it's a, it's a bittersweet uh, feeling you have if you look at, uh, at the machine which, which was created and which has been the best at the time but didn't win and didn't race then in reality. Well, I think as well, just for those <coughs> not looking at the video, I'm sure you'll be able to see it in the photos, but when looking at the Uhlenhaut Coupe compared to a standard 300 SL, it's lower, but it's meaner. It's got those wonderful side exit exhausts. It's a light, lightweight magnesium alloy body. Um, but if you look inside the cockpit, of course, to get in, you remove the steering wheel just as you do in a modern racing car. But for me, one of the standout features is that macho, uh, immense uh, gear lever gate, uh, which basically seems to be about 30 or 40 percent bigger and beefier than any other I've ever seen on and any it, race and car. And it, it's, it's, um, it's the position of it as well. Is, you know, the, the driver, it's just exactly where you want it, that gear lever, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's exactly where you want it, but if you have a co-driver, the co-driver <laughs> definitely doesn't want it to have it there. And worth noting as well, it has inboard drum brakes, which is quite interesting. As <coughs> when you open the bonnet and you see the front drum brakes in the centre of the car, mm. obviously to help with the unsprung weight, yes. uh, which mm. is very important for handling yeah. characteristics, as you know. Yeah. So there were so many different innovations yeah. and technical uh, learned on the racetrack and, and all put into uh, that car. The, the drum brakes uh, of the Uhlenhaut, but also of the 300 SL later, they were made to race. So they are really good drum brakes. And initially, uh, the disc brakes were made for better comfort. Uh, so uh, if nowadays uh, you look into the technology, you would say a disc brake is the, is the higher performing thing. But at the time of the introduction of the disc brake, the drum brake was better. Mm. That's an interesting point, which I'm going to um take issue with because I spoke to the team at the, the Classic Centre and I asked them, I said, well, Jaguar, of course, being British, were racing with the C-Type with uh, disc brakes in 1953. And I said, why, why did Mercedes not adopt? And he said, because you wouldn't let them have us. Uh, well, you wouldn't let us have them. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is there any truth to that, uh, do you think? I would, I would uh, argue the other way around, actually. Initially, you, you couldn't be sure that the material has all the 
resilience you needed for the discs because they, they heat up um, substantially. And uh, if you cannot really take the heat away in the right moment, actually the disc will get uneven. Yeah. Yeah. And then you are in trouble, mm. actually. Mm. And mm. the drum brakes, they were very reliable. They, uh, they did the job and then actually the German racer would argue a racer doesn't need a brake, why would he? I, yeah, well Enzo Ferrari was famously <laughs> quoted with that. If you have a good engine, why do you need good brakes? You uh, see. Along those lines, <laughs> yeah, interesting. interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree. <laughs> well, I guess it's fair to say um, that one of the uh, interesting topics that probably a few of our listeners are going to want to have a better understanding of is how after all of these years, with both of these cars living uh, in your very safe custody, how you eventually came to the decision that, that one of these um, should be offered on, on, onto the market. Uh, can you get, give us a little bit of the background as to how that Yeah. Happened? Well, I think most important is we do have two. And uh, that's the number one condition of any relevant car which we have collected if we if we just have one we never would consider uh, to give it away under what conditions at what conditions ever or um, for what purpose ever uh, but here we see there's two in our as you said custody and then on the other hand most of our uh, iconic cars basically for all of them uh, we have, so to say, unsolicited blind offers all the time, since the very early days, all the time. Um, now, still, you say, why, why would we? But then you have to, to understand at the moment, uh, we, we have been uh, rearranging our, um, what we call ESG, um, area, our, our whole uh, environmental social governance um, concept and, um, and we do live in transitional uh, times. This corporation basically had three founders uh, which was Karl Benz, Gottlieb Daimler and Wilhelm Maybach. So we have originally two corporations, Benz and Daimler. And um, two of the three founders of later on Daimler-Benz, Daimler and Maybach, came from very, let's say, humble, not to say restricted family backgrounds. And only through external support could develop their talents. Gottlieb Daimler was born into a small wine merchant and bakery business close by Stuttgart here in Schondorf. And um, that wasn't a great environment actually. Um, the young boy could only be given for education to an apprenticeship two doors around the corner, two doors, because he still had to live at home they couldn't pay the parents for any education abroad. He had to, he had to uh, sleep at home, he had to eat at home, and he had to help in the business. So he did this apprenticeship and it was a gunsmith. 
and his apprentice piece, which he had to deliver after uh, the apprenticeship, actually was excellent. And he got a scholarship uh, given here by uh, the government to uh, be able to go to the Polytechnical School, nowadays the University of Stuttgart, and study uh, to become an engineer. And later on he was given twice another scholarship uh, to go first for a short time to France and then for three years to the United Kingdom to work supported here by the government uh, with a scholarship uh, in Coventry and in Manchester in locomotive corporations. At that time, Coventry, Manchester, there was the Silicon Valley of the world. Mm -hmm. There was the leading technological industrial playground. And the young Gottlieb uh, learned what industry means and came back and uh, worked as a technical director of a machine uh, corporation close by here where a young orphan was working as well and he understood the talent of this young chap who had the name of Wilhelm Maybach and supported him the same way he was supported. So scholarships for talent which couldn't develop under restricted conditions is the very early beginning of this corporation. And this is why we thought uh, in such uncertain times, in a world where talent is distributed all over the world in the same way, but the capability to develop the talent is not, mm. we should play as good as we can an important role for that. And this is then the reason why we said, um, let's take one of the Uhlenhauts and let's bring it to market and let's give all the money uh, which we can raise here to create a fund, the Mercedes-Benz fund, which will have the purpose to support young people who are very talented but who couldn't develop the talent to go to university, to go to school, to run projects which are all around decarbonization of the future of uh, the car and the vehicle and um, for sustainability uh, technologies in that field. And this is uh, actually how the decision was taken. And from there we started to develop the whole idea how to really roll it out. I mean, you, you said earlier that, you know, having unsolicited offers for cars um, is something that has been going on for, for years, decades. Um, where the Uhlenhaut Coupe was concerned, did you have an expectation of what the car was worth or, or were you just simply prepared for the market to decide what the car was worth? Well, it's an incredibly difficult uh, exercise to talk about a market value of something which didn't have a market so mm. far mm. because there are only two of them and you cannot compare them to any other Mercedes-Benz vehicle which was ever sold or to any other vehicle of any other brand ever sold. And so actually I refuse to talk about uh, theoretical market values. I said we have to create a market situation and this is uh, how um, we actually connected then 
RM Sotheby's and uh, us, we anyway had long-standing relations and uh, so we started to talk. We talked to others as well, but there is only two or three institutions in the world, I think, who would cross my mind. And um, we actually, it, 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 has, it has really been clear very soon that um, RM Sotheby's and, and their people um, completely share our understanding of brand, of uh, heritage, of highest standards in terms of compliance, of respect uh, towards uh, everybody involved. And so we um, started to create a concept together. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, that, that glowing endorsement. But I mean, I remember, y Peter, when we were sort of in the process of this sale, <coughs> I think you contextualized it as being, in a way, a sort of, a, for anyone involved, a career-defining moment, because this is a, uh, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, right? I mean, it, 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 the, we never thought this opportunity to work with Mercedes on a sale like this would ever happen. If you had asked any of us in January this year, do you, do you do any of us think that we might be offering an Uhlenhaut coupe at auction? Uh, I don't think any of us could have predicted that. A lot of things happen since January, which yeah. everybody <laughs> has <laughs> said <laughs> will never happen. As Marcus said, it, it was unprecedented. It still remains a situation where obviously Mercedes-Benz had expectations. They had their view on how the process should be managed. We tried to add our value to that and make our own recommendations as to how that process would best be managed within the restrictions that the corporation had. And I think the first of those is that they felt that the new owner firstly had to uh, meet with the criteria of an ambassador for the Mercedes-Benz brand and they, they felt very strongly that the new custodian of the car uh, shouldn't be someone who's buying it just purely from an investment point of view, somebody that's going to lock it away in an underground bunker never to be seen again. This car has a CV like no other and that should be continued. When we came to Mercedes for the first time for a meeting to talk about it, we didn't know what car we were coming here to talk about. It was an important car from the Mercedes collection. As I said, Marcus did a very good job of making sure that he had a light salad for lunch and we had heavyweight double Venus schnitzels. And we were <laughs> so whatever he said, we had to agree to because we were exhausted. <laughs> no, but the point is that, you know, we, I think there was a connection. I think there was a, an alignment in our thinking. And most importantly, we, we, we came away, both of us believing in each other. And, and believe in it. You have to say if Mercedes-Benz believe that this car is going to sell for this sort of sum of money, and of course they had expectations, why, who are we to question that? Why shouldn't we believe that? And we knew that there was expressed interest. We knew that we could add value to that. We knew that by working with um, you know, our partners at Sotheby's as well, we had the widest global reach, the best possible client database with whom to discuss this, but uh, actually it came down to a certain number of people that were um, people that Mercedes-Benz felt would be the right future custodians, obviously people that understood what they were buying, and why they were buying it more importantly, and that I think have now, that you know, the end buyer has now become very much part of the Mercedes-Benz family. And I think that was really the mission that we started out with. 
Um, so we're delighted, of course, with the result. And I think when it came down to the wire in this very building, hosting a live auction, uh, which was an evolution in, a, in, in the process discussion that we had, um, nobody really knew what the end result was going to be. And that is the beauty of an auction. The main thing mm. is it surpassed you know, our best guess as to what it might be worth. But most people coming into this, in fact, everyone knew that this car was considered by the widest possible um, car collecting community to be the most valuable car in the world. And that point was, yeah. was very well proven. And I mean, one of the most remarkable statistics in a way about this whole project, um, it, and uh, we've talked about it a little bit in, in a number of interviews in, in the week since, is that the opening bid was, uh, was uh, offered, shall we say, at a price point which exceeded the, the pre-existing uh, most valuable uh, price ever paid for a car. Uh, so that really does put it into perspective, doesn't it? When you open the bidding at a price which already exceeds the world record, you know you're into a completely new stratosphere of, of, of the market. Well, I, th I think we can't even any longer compare it to cars. We can talk about the most valuable objects on record that have mm. ever been sold, both in terms of art, um, and, and, and of course cars in this case as engineering art and, and this uh, motor car became on that day the eighth most expensive object ever sold that's on record which is incredible when you look at the the roster of you know works of art that were alongside it the Uhlenhaut coupe you know designed and that built in Stuttgart absolutely there was number eight. I mean that that to I mean again let's go back to January this year and you, you know if you're at that point in time if you were talking about um, the 10 most valuable things ever sold at auction that is a top 10 compute completely dominated by traditional works of art yep. uh, and I think at the top of that is a, is a Leonardo at 400 odd million uh, and then you quite quickly drop down to sort of the 200 million mark and and the top 10 sort of spans 400 million down to s somewhere around 125 million 120 million I forget the precise numbers I think at that point you know in January when we were all seeing the new year in if you had said to any of your friends well I think there might be a car that's now going to enter th those realms and become you know sit within the top 10 most valuable things ever sold people would have looked at you and thought that that was perhaps not a very likely scenario. Well, Leonardo probably would have seen it from a different angle because he <laughs> was an inventor and he created uh, stunning machines and for him also. And uh, that's, I think, uh, important to understand what, um, uh, what this vehicle uh, means. Uh, it, uh, also art, traditional art, mm. uh, but also modern art. It's, it's about uh, the best uh, knowledge you have, uh, the best um, material you can use, uh, and the best execution you can give to it. Uh, also, the vehicle, obviously, for those who, who watch at the screen, uh, they, uh, the sculpture, uh, the silhouette uh, is next to perfect and uh, makes a, a great and unforgettable impression. So also for the future, if I look um, into uh, the way how to display it in years to come, uh, because everybody who was participating in the bid, in the process, 
had to agree that they, in case of a successful bid, uh, that also for the future, uh, the vehicle has to be accessible uh, in a relevant way from time to time, as it was in the past. So I would love to see it um, also combined uh, in, a, in a context uh, which uh, I could imagine uh, from time to time being uh, sculptural masterpieces of, uh, of art and um, mm -hmm. so to say as a um, significant uh, testimonial of, um, of human heritage, indeed. Mm. Mm. Well, I, th I think the thing about cars as art is that, I mean, we, we, we talk about it, you race, we love motor cars, but just really for the benefit of this conversation, cars fulfill every sense. And I'm, uh, this isn't to take anything away from great works of art, but the fact is, you know, they look great, so they fill your visual sense. They sound great, in particular in the case of this car, which, as you say, eight cylinders of thunder. It's just unbelievable. They, they, you know, they feel great when you touch them, you stroke them, you feel the woodwind wheel, you feel the lever, you feel that wonderful gear lever in your hand in that, you know, masculine macho gait. Um, you know, they, they, they smell great and they even taste great. The, the, the taste of beer, I think, when you're driving on the banking at your test circuit. You haven't been licking your car. No, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. No, I had to give that up, um, doctor's orders. But I think the point is that, um, you know, Marcus, you know, 135 <coughs> million euros and Mercedes-Benz is 136 years old, so we, we almost made it a million euros for every year of uh, Mercedes-Benz history. And that's what I understand <laughs> under a proper residual value development indeed, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, I think, is a very good moment to, uh, to conclude this conversation. Uh, uh, Marcus, thank you so much. That has been absolutely... Nobody could have talked about this whole topic with more enthusiasm and more clarity and more understanding than you've done and um, and thank you Peter it's been a great conversation and I think that it's clear um, that the sale of that car and it's not it's not just about the value I know that's the headline that everyone talks about but it, it is unprecedented and and in our lifetimes we may not see the like of it again so I think it's it's a very it is a very significant moment and and uh, it's uh, I think it needs to be explained and it needs to un to be understood because I think as we move forward through the decades this is always going to be a touch point in history the sale of this car is always going to be a touch point in history that people will talk about and refer to so thank you very much indeed thank you for coming thank you so thank you everybody for joining us for this special one-off episode uh, entirely dedicated to the world of Mercedes-Benz. Uh, it's been a delight being here in Stuttgart at the Mercedes-Benz Museum, wonderful surroundings. Uh, we've taken a short break from our first season and we're going to be back soon, so keep an eye out uh, on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for us on YouTube as well and we'll be back soon.